Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Welcome to Local Zero. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Alice Bell. Alice is director of climate change charity Possible and author of a new book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of Climate Change. We'll talk with Alice about the work that Possible does and the ways they're working to stimulate meaningful public engagement with climate change. We'll also be chatting with her about the insights she shares in her new book, which was published in July. It's called Our Biggest Experiment. It tells two kind of interlocking stories. One, which is how we got into this mess, how we caused the climate crisis, uh, particularly through building key infrastructures around the fossil fuel industry, but also how we discovered it was happening in the first place. How we went from just seeing the air around us as air, thin air, to appreciating it was this complex mix of chemicals and pulling out things like carbon dioxide and realizing that they warmed a planet. As always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go and find us and follow us at localzeropod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. As always, it wouldn't be Local Zero without Fraser. So welcome to the show, Fraser. How are we doing, team? How is everybody? Very good. Very excited about having Alice along today. Been wanting to have her on the show for ages. Oh, absolutely. I think it's going to be a really good conversation. Me too. Yeah, certainly will. And I I really like the way that she can delve really deeply into what could be quite a depressing and devastating topic. Yep but somehow manages to draw, you know, inspiration and hope and yeah. have a far far more positive message than I know that I would in the same situation. That's it. And I think that shines through in her book as well, which we'll talk more about later, which is, you know, our biggest experiment, talks about the history of climate change. Fascinating book. And if you really do want to understand how we got to where we are, go get a copy, have a read. It's uh, you, you really won't regret it. I think also what I'd like to get out of the chat today is Alice is uh, actually holds a PhD in sort of science and technology communications, public engagement. So she's done the research around this. She's taught on it, places like Imperial College and elsewhere. She's also putting theory into action now. So she really is the person to talk to about how we translate some of the dire messaging that we saw from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and put that into action and get people on board. Yeah, that's a really, really difficult topic to get people behind because for most people, they're just going to be thinking, oh my 
goodness, you know, what the sky is falling, what's next? There's a fear reaction to all of that. And I think it really takes some skill to take that and take some of that messaging and, and think about, actually, let's let's use this and try and turn it into something positive. Let's use this to engage people in new ways and get more people on board with the action that everybody's got to start taking over the coming years. So I think without further ado, we should bring her in. Hi, I'm Alice Bell. Um, I am co-director of the climate charity Possible and also just written a book about the history of the climate crisis called Our Biggest Experiment. Alice, welcome. Thank you for making the time to join us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you along. Um, what I guess we'd like to kick off with is learning a little bit more about day job involves with the charity possible um i've been a, a long-term fan of the work you that you've done involved with various projects campaigns commissioning some really interesting research uh, but you as co-director you'll be at the helm and i just wanted to learn a little bit more about what the charity does and what your job involves well like a lot of people my job is mainly uh, looking at spreadsheets and sending people emails <laughs> being a climate <laughs> campaigner is very similar to lots of other jobs um but the work that we do is uh, focused on ways in which every everybody in the uk just a general member of society not someone whose job it is to be a climate campaigner but everyone can have a role in thinking about how we tackle climate change and i think it's something that i personally feel very uh, passionate about and is something that is embedded in the approach that possible takes to climate action which is that we have to completely transform our world in order to tackle climate change and we need to bring people with us on that so it, it, it's not going to work if we just someone in Westminster says this is what you should do because a lot of people will turn around and go no and that'll slow us down so just to speed us up we need to involve people but also you know just from a point of view of democracy like we should be involved in what it should look like and also I think maybe something that I think your listeners will appreciate is also from an innovation point of view, actually, if we involve more people, we'll have better ideas. So one of the best projects that we've done is um, we did some work years ago working with communities that have come together because they had had to think about fracking in their local area. So people, when back when people decided they might frack in the UK, which largely they've forgotten about now, but there was a little phase where that was a bit fashionable. There was a few areas that were sort of, sort of uh, suggested we testing places for this fracking. The village of Borkham in Sussex being the first and the most famous. So all the, the kind of fracking drills rolled in and the local people, you know, at the time in the UK, fracking was just this weird word that environmentalists said. No one really knew what it was. Um, but it, it caused a lot of discussion in the local community. There were people who came together to be against fracking. There were people who were pro it. There were people who weren't sure. And in the end, they, the frackers decided that it wasn't the right kind of rock and they, they left. And But the community was sort of left with this new way of thinking about energy that other people hadn't had and we work with them to think about how what do they want instead right they weren't going to have fracking what do they want instead and they chose solar and we worked with them on solar and we were starting to work with other communities people who've been brought together or divided or just had a discussion about about energy because of fracking and many of them were saying we want we want community-owned renewables and unfortunately the work that we've done there was stalled massively kind of destroyed in places because of the solar cut in 2015 but um, there were still loads of ideas and enthusiasm. And in fact, in Borkham, one of the things they'd done when they were looking for where they were going to site their solar farm was um, that part of southeast England is at kind of what's called grid capacity. So it's a problem. You've got all these places you can install a solar farm in theory, but there's not enough spaces you can actually 
uh, plug it into the grid. And so they were like, well, where else can we plug in our solar farm? And they, they noticed the electric railways. You know, the railway, it's a commuter town. The railway literally bisects the village. And they're like, oh, we should plug it into the railway. Um, so they asked a local electrical engineer, could we do this? And he kind of went, well, in theory, but no one's done it. So it'd be a lot of work. So I wouldn't bother. But because of their enthusiasm and because of their interest, um, and also because the government had destroyed solar funding, so we didn't have many other options, yeah. we built what is now a world leading technology of like solar powered railways. And, you know, we're, my colleagues are talking to people all over the world about how we could, how can we transform that? And that innovation wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the enthusiasm and also in places, the local expertise that came from the local community. And so that's the sort of thing we do at Possible is find ways that the British public can be involved in this, you know, what geeks call low carbon transition, but tackling climate change, because we know that's the best way to do it at speed and also probably going to have the best ideas as well. I love all of this. And I love talking about the innovation and inspiration and excitement that can happen when people get really engaged in their communities, in their places and, and kind of come together to, to co-create these solutions. A lot of the time when I look at communities like that, there's always, there's a, there's a backstory, right? So whether it's that there was going to be fracking there and that engaged people in ways that they'd never been engaged with before, or whether it's a community that's experienced, say, really severe flooding that's been very closely tied to climate and they've come together and rallied around that. One of my worries is that a lot of the, a lot of the framing around climate change can often feel quite, you know, you can feel, you can be filled with despair rather than hope and innovation. And so, you know, have you found with the work that you've been doing impossible that there's ways to engage communities that might not have been engaged through, you know, uh, fracking coming to them or, or some other kind of disastrous event that might have brought them together? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we were, one of the reasons Possible started life as a, a campaign called 1010, which was to cut your carbon by 10% by 2010. And that was in the, the sort of era of climate action on the run up to the Copenhagen talks when there was a lot of doom. It was like, if you think there's the doom laden narratives at the moment, there's nothing on the mid noughties. Uh, we were all going to die. Uh, I mean, it's true. It's one thing is certain we will all die. But um, it was, there was a lot of kind of understandable grief and concern and fear. And 1010 wanted to give people a way of lifting themselves out of that, which wasn't to say it's going to be okay, because it's not going to be a climate, you know, things we can find ways so that humanity can still prosper. And we can think of fair ways of doing that. But it's not gonna be okay. We've already cooked up a degree or so global warming, that's not okay. Um, so we're not diminishing that, but giving people a way of lifting out of that feeling that there's nothing I can do. And we know that one of the best ways of tackling that feeling of climate grief and despair is to take action. And so coming up with things to do, whether it's building solar farm or planting trees. And so we do do quite a lot of work in, like we've done a lot of work in flood affected communities as well, like you mentioned, as well as the fracking group. But we've also done things like just bringing solutions to people of things that they can do. So we had a great project called Solar Schools, which engaged schools all over England, which were lots of different types of school. One of the things that was interesting about that project was the variety of types of schools and the reasons why they were interested in it. So some of them came to it because there was a green club and they were like, well, we've done our recycling and we've got people to turn the lights off, we've got LEDs, what next? Let's put some solar panels on the roof. Yeah. As we Also, as we'd gone for a couple of years, people it kind of stories got around about how great solar schools was and what it could do for your schools. And there were a couple of schools where, like particularly in uh, small kind of rural areas where they maybe struggled to get uh, numbers for a year and they were sort of worrying about the long-term viability of the school. 
and they you the solar schools help bring the community around the school and help strengthen the school's community and strengthen the school and so people were doing it not necessarily for environmental reasons but for other other reasons to do with why the school would run or just simply like it was a nice way of giving the pta something to do or uh, it meant that they could make a little bit of money to take people on school trips to help subsidized school budgets as well budgets are being cut and people would get a lot out of it in terms of climate action and they'd find that suddenly they could talk about climate change in a way that especially a school playground you know you want to talk about climate change in front of the children parents understandably feeling extra sort of fear and anxiety around the idea of climate change whereas this gave them a chance to talk about it in a way that was positive it wasn't if they could then later have the conversation about oh aren't you scared about flooding or things like that but their starting point was this wonderful positive thing they were doing for the school taking ownership of the problem yes taking action and, and yep. just i mean do something that you love and you and it was a chance to celebrate something you love and what i'd like us to be able to do is run more projects like that which is being able to kind of just have something that was a bit white label that you can just take to so many different contexts. And we've tried to grow different ones like that. And we have struggled because the government keeps doing things like slashing uh, solar support and uh, putting a block on onshore wind. Um, so we're a bit of a constant rush against government policy on things like that. With that example of the school, it strikes me as quite important. I think you made this point on Twitter the other day, you know, build your climate action around something that you believe in, something that you love. And I think there, you know, the, the solar for schools, the primary thing for me, I mean, I've followed this project for a while. It feels like is the school. It's the welfare of the students. It's the welfare of the teachers. It's the, the you know, growing that budget so they can do something they otherwise wouldn't. And, and, but climate action is kind of cooked into that to improve the welfare. So it's bigger than climate. Is that, is that kind of what you're driving at? Oh yeah. It's not, and it's, sort of, it's a thing that kind of climate comms people talk about as co-benefits. And I mean, one of the things that we, always make sure we do it at possible is that for example another project we've done again waiting on government policy but will be brilliant at some point is getting park user groups to install heat pumps in their parks and this will offer a way of having renewable heat in particularly urban areas where heat pumps ground source heat pumps might be harder to install because you don't have big gardens or a field or somewhere but you've got a park so the park could maybe generate heat for a local school or businesses or homes but also generate income for the park so places parks which are under huge amount of stress because of cuts to, to local authority budgets would have money to, to you know so employ the staff that, that manage the park and run special events and, and have extra activities and spaces and things like that and um we could sell that as purely just about the park, just like we could have sold solar schools as just about the school. But for us, it's always important that we we still talk about climate change. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's a big part of how we plan projects is that we're like, yeah, co-benefits. So it doesn't mean we have to talk about climate change first. We're not here to stuff climate change down your throat because you probably do care more about your school or your park or whatever than climate change. But we're not going to hide it. We're not going to do the thing of like hiding the climate change behind the, the polar bear or the air pollution concern. Uh, we're going to bring it with us too. And have the types of projects that you've engaged with changed since the beginnings of 1010? So we're going all the way back to Copenhagen and I guess before that in the run-up to that, which if my memory serves me correctly, if I've got my cop history, which I'm talking to a historian here, hope I get this right, 2009, I hope. Yeah. Good. All right, cha-ching. That, you know, you've, you've, Possible's been around for well over a decade now. So are you doing different things? Is, is the demands of the citizens that you're trying to engage with climate change, are you having to tailor and adapt? Yeah, a bit. Like, so we, we changed from 1010 to Possible um, a bit over two years, just under two years ago. And we spent a lot of time internally talking about what does it mean to be a climate campaign in the 2020s that is different from somebody in 2008 setting up a climate campaign. 
because um, we didn't want to have to change our name again. <laughs> so like, what, does, what does it mean now? Um, we sound silly, but we spent quite a lot of time talking about how we changed our shade of pink, which does sound really trivial, but actually it was quite important and it was symbolic for us about, because when 1010 started in 2008, it was that it was, we were pink, not green. And that felt important as a statement of what we were about. We were a bright pink. We're a cheerful pink. Uh, we're an unexpected pink. And we felt that we still wanted to be pink, not green, but that we were a slightly darker one because, you know, we have, you know, the climate movement, I don't think it's fair to say the climate movement's failed, but it hasn't succeeded in the way it wanted to. It's continued to still be pushed against and delayed. And you know, we're fighting a juggernaut of people who do not want us to take action. And there's a limit to how, how much we've been able to push back. You know, although a lot of the fears that people were expressing in, in the in the mid to late noughties are starting to happen. And we have to, to be there and we have to reflect that. And we can't just hide away behind our solar panels and say, look, it's going to be, look, let's get on with it. You know, as well as saying, right, we need to roll up our sleeves and get on with it. We also need to create a bit more space for acknowledging the grief. And I think that's something that uh, with things like our tree planting projects, one of the reasons we do them. So one of the sort of approaches to that is we, we go to a community and we do community tree planting. So you could, one of the most efficient ways to plant trees is just to get professionals to do it. You don't want to get the local community to do it. But by having community tree planting, you create a space where people can talk about climate change. It's a bit like the solar schools could turn the playgrounds into a place where you could, you could sort of, it was socially acceptable to talk about climate change. And those sorts of conversations, because, particularly because they're in environments that have been obviously impacted by climate change, you, you have to be very respectful of how much it hurts. And to be a bit more aware of being at that sharp end that, you know, when I was, when I was writing my book were things that people in the you know, 60s and 70s and 80s were talking about in the future, it might be like this if, if we don't act. Yeah. And we're like, well, now we're living that. And so we have, to, we have to reflect that. So I think that element's changed. I think also it always was about uh, not just individuals, but how you could work collectively and how if it was something you might be doing on your own, you weren't doing it just on your own. You were doing it with others to express a kind of collective action. But we've got more of a focus, I think, on community engagement as, as we've grown uh, and as we've developed. And also we've had to shift with political changes, you know, particularly the, the, the 2015 solar cuts were probably incredibly impactful for us in thinking about how we changed our approach to campaigning and appreciate that we had to be a lot more active in the face uh, of the political in the political sphere and kind of avoiding letting that happen again and an onshore wind which you've run you know campaigns on too there's so many different projects that you've been involved in and different different approaches the different sort of technologies that you can embed and obviously as you say that has to align with the kind of political agenda and the the funding and the incentives and so on but I think this concept of grief is a really a really interesting one to dig into because it's 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 I guess grief and acknowledgement about what's happening through our changing climate. But I also think that we can often talk a lot about action and focus on technologies that we can pull in or technological substitutions as opposed to thinking more broadly about the kind of holistic lifestyle changes that we might have to embark on and the potential grief that might go alongside some of that and so I'm wondering you know with the with the programs that you're doing and as you're starting to see more engagement and more dialogue are you starting to unpick some of these other actions that you know individuals or communities might need to take that could perhaps be a bit more grating 
because they're requiring more fundamental change. I think that's an area that we're coming into a lot more on. So I mean, with the 10% challenge, it was kind of, can you cut your carbon by 10% by 2010? Most people can do that quite easily. That's not too hard. And it was meant to be a starter. And actually, a lot of people who got engaged in that went a lot further. Because once you do your 10%, you do a lot more. Then we, yeah, we moved into more of a community action stuff. And we did, a, I think we still do an awful lot, which is public engagement with technology. So you get some people who sort of, I mean, that's kind of my background as well. I come from kind of, I was used to be an academic sort of in science and technology policy. And so I've done kind of various amounts of work, either studying or looking at other people studying the ways in which public might engage with often new technologies. So you get your, your new technology. How does the public engage with it? Well, actually with climate action, a lot of it's how do we engage with really old technologies that, or, or re-engage with tech, like the technologies of oil and gas, like what are our relationships with oil and gas and how do we have to transform those relationships? So some of it's, it's that sort of stuff. Um, and then in, the, in about well, two years ago, when we rebranded as, as possible, we also had a new strategy and we thought about what are the key areas we're going to work in. And part of our strategic focus for the last few years has been on transport, uh, which relates to people choosing whether they're going to drive or not and also whether they're going to fly or not. And then on top of that, also heating, which heating as a, as a, as a whole, it's a very messy and difficult, naughty problem, but can involve quite a lot of, or potentially will involve quite a lot of disruption in people's homes. And it's certainly one of an area which the delayers are really pushing uh, messaging to kind of, to make it sound like it's going to be very expensive and very disruptive. And it's going to be, I think it's going to, we'll see in, continually in the next few years, a lot of fights over this. And so I feel like we're moving into areas which are a little bit tougher like that. And I think that, well, I mean, I know that for the sort of, uh, as long as I've been at Possible the last six years, we've we've always kind of tried to combine stuff that sometimes gets dubbed like lifestyle changes, but is a little bit bigger than that, which is sort of having conversations about people about how we might change things like uh, the emissions that are created through consumption and transport. And then things that are to do with a bit more about technology, like the building solar powered railways or putting heat pumps in your park, which are a little bit more gee whiz. And so we kind of intervene in that gee whiz area to try and make it a little bit more community minded. So another thing we're doing at the moment is um, we're involved in a trial of electric motorways, which might sound super like... Yeah, what is that? Tell us what that means. Oh, it's, uh, well, you know, some of our railways, and they should all be all of our railways, and it's disgusting how slow it is, but some of our railways work with electric rails. Yeah. You know, you got scared at school not to touch the electric rail. <laughs> or um, trams have these kind of things above them that they, they can kind of attach to. And some of the first electric transport dates back over 100 years they'd kind of uh, attach to a thing above them, a wire above them to run and get their electricity off. And you can have the same thing in, in motorways. So we could have an electric line in motorways, which would have lorries and coaches. And that would decrease uh, noise pollution and air pollution. It would be great for lorry drivers because at the moment they are, have to be highly affected by air pollution because they're sitting in motorways. You know, if, they could be, if we could be decreasing the amount of, of air pollution created by things like lorries, that, that would be great for people who live near motorways and also people who work on them and also for our consumption emissions because so much of our stuff is transported around like this and there are parts of the country that aren't very well served by the railways and so people might want to get around by coach if they didn't want to have a car so we'd need to think about that now this is a big like innovation project most of our partners are big technology companies and we're involved because we think there's ways in which we could grow that technology from the start in a way that would be more engaging with local communities so we might i mean potentially we can be applying some of the stuff we've done with our solar railways. So just like we want to be talking to local communities across the, the UK about, all right, well, you've got an electric railway going through your town and we want to uh, run it off renewables. What renewable works for you? Let's together yep. work out like what are your 
renewable resources in the local area do you prefer wind or solar who do you, do you want it to be owned by you in the local community or are you happy for a big company to come in and build it like have those conversations similarly we could be having those conversations about electrification of motorways and i think i think it's really important that we involve the local communities in that and i think we'll do it better and we'll do it faster if we do it but an alternative vision of it is it's just a load of big companies go in and make some money out of it yeah and the local people don't necessarily notice until it upsets them in some way so alice you've you've mentioned a few key actors here throughout the interview companies just now state before uh, and then we've kind of got citizen civic action individual action and ultimately it's going to take all of these right to, together uh, in some kind of cohesive joined up manner which we're still waiting for the ipcc report spells out you know action has to happen today and it has to be severe and it has to be rapid so often i'm asked by family and friends you know what choices should i make and you know if I make these choices, does it make any any difference? And I think what I'm starting to feel from uh, people I speak to is that they acknowledge climate change as an issue. They know they they're actually convinced by you know the media coverage we had on the BBC and others. They they acknowledge the IPCC is probably right. And then there's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde where they're also not taking the necessary actions because what's the point? You know, the US, China, India, and then they'll they'll go off on this litany of excuses. How is possible tackling that? How are they looking to convince those that I think are kind of climate agnostic? They're, they're kind of sitting on the fence and they're willing to be convinced to take the action, but they're not quite there yet. I mean, a lot of it's just normalising it. So some of it is some of it's the fun techie thing, and you're like, it's a new technology, and that brings people in, like the e motorways or whatever, or the 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 op- and or the opportunity to improve something in your local community. So you're like, all right, I can support my school or my local park or something. Um, but I think it's also just doing it as a collection like there's this a real key psychological principle that a lot of people in climate um, activism pay attention to and i think groups like people like uh, the the car center at cardiff have been emphasizing recently which is when you hear when you hear a fire alarm that's not what makes you take action it's when you see other people reacting to the fire alarm so i mentioned cast have been looking at this and uh, they've been looking at it with respect to COVID and they're saying that people took re- responded to COVID regulations not just when they were told to do it but when they saw politicians taking action and they you know when those rules were actually come into place i think we all probably saw it we sort of like heard the stories of covid and thought oh should i be staying at home should i be yeah, wearing a mask this is serious now kind of it was only yeah. when um, so i mean lockdown happened in terms of what the government said after several key institutions did it and those key institutions starting to close like you know the welcome was very early in doing that and you know they're very authoritative and so they sort of welcomes close and then another museum shut and another uh, big company has sent their staff to work from home and then the government says something and then you're like oh oh i have to do something yeah it's serious and the same pattern works with climate change and so that's the sort of thing that we take into how we run our campaign so a lot of like one of the simple things of like are you going to fly less it's like well we know from research that has been done at places like cardiff that if you cut down flying for environmental reasons and you tell your friends that not only are they likely to cut down their flying too but they'll also support policy changes that will make sustainable transport easier for everyone so we want to make sure that people know that that research is true so they know if they tell their friends um, that they're not flying it doesn't they're not just doing it as like virtual signaling or just like to annoy their friends like that will have an impact they can play a role in cultural change but also just creating spaces where people can signal that to each other so that was i think that was a great thing about the 1010 campaign back in the noughties was that it was just about lots of people putting their hand i'm going i'm doing it and that normalized it and I think that was true also with the, the solar the solar schools is 
the woman who used to run that, Cecily, I remember her when, she, when I first started, she gave me a briefing and she sort of mischievously said, my favourite thing about it is it just makes it normal. It means it's not this weird green stuff that like someone yeah. down the road talks about, you know, your hippie friend talks about, but it's just, it's what you do in your school. Yeah. And so for all the kids and the families, it wasn't just the solo that was normalised. I think it was just talking about climate change was normalised. And the idea that you were taking action wasn't seen as weird. And I think, although I think you're right that people need to feel like what they're doing is having impact and, you know, that's on all of us to show that but i think just making it culturally acceptable and having those those cultural signals is vital too and that's one of the ways that people will see it's having impact because you'll be like oh well i gave up meat or i've cut down on meat but i can see that this is also something that yeah. all my friends are doing but it's, it's it's akin to like mask wearing as well i guess you yeah. know that I, I what i've really picked up from the pandemic is the science backs it up and people are like yeah well, wearing a mask is a good thing but basically most of us are doing it out of sheer kind of social shame if you don't that's that's kind of i guess what you're driving at is that there's this normalization of actions which we know are positive but if but there's also a kind of cultural attachment to them and it breaks down so quickly too i mean i don't know what it's like for you around glasgow but i'm certainly finding in london that it's that it's very speedily breaking down in terms of yeah. um fragile so, you know the the signal was now that you don't have to wear masks and even though on london transport they've said you have to it's really noticeable that it's decreased. And because you just take a few people not doing it and you're like, oh, it's okay for me not to do it too. <laughs> and so that's, I mean, that's fragile, that that change. And we, so even if climate activists can build that in areas, we need to make sure we maintain it. Yeah. And I think part of that is the consistent messaging and the strong messaging and not sort of suddenly changing the story. And, and for me, that actually, if we talk about it from a you know COVID and mask wearing perspective, that's always been one of the challenges has been, hang on a minute, they're saying that and they're saying that. and and what do I do and where where do we want to go? And I think you can completely see that that has happened in the climate change sphere over the past, you know, few decades. And the the recently released IPCC report has been, you know, for me in, in one respect, absolutely brilliant at really emphasizing and strengthening the narrative about what is happening and how we need to respond. But I think we need to, you know, remember this isn't new and this has been something that's been going on for for many years and, and climate change scientists have been coming together for years and years and years. And this is actually a topic really close to your heart and something that you dig into in your new book. So I'm wondering, maybe we've been talking about the future. Maybe we can just kind of reflect a little bit on the past. And can you share share with us some of the insights that you've been that you've been digging up? Well, one thing is that we have been talking about climate change for a long time and some of us will remember it. Like, you know, we've had an IPCC report and some people are going, oh no, oh no, it's an IPCC report. I must change everything. <laughs> and, you know, those of us who are there to capture that feeling go, yes, right, let's take it somewhere useful. But I do remember often the same people having the same reaction, which they seem to have forgotten about seven years ago when we had the last report and maybe seven years before then. You can see this all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. Like basically human bits of humanity get scared about climate change roughly every five to 10 years and have done for about the last 150 years. And I think that this happens each wave seems to happen bigger and with greater intensity and have more lasting impact. So that's the positive side. The other context to that, which is that climate change is also coming at us harder and with greater impacts each time, you know, in greater waves. And whether our, our interest in climate change can kind of keep up with climate change itself, I'm a bit concerned about. But yeah, yeah. I mean, when I'm feeling a bit grumpy, I do sort of look back on the historical bit of it and go, oh, I've been here before. You know, every time I see 
David Attenborough is doing this thing on the BBC. And I'm like, yes, that's yeah. about the third time he's done that. <laughs> well, I really liked at the beginning of your book how you kind of set the scene. Initially, we're getting interested in climate change for the opposite reason of yeah. potentially getting too cold uh, and, you know, the concerns around that. But the, the two big things that kind of popped out of me in the, in the last chapter was that you said that, you know, and I quote, one of the key lessons I took from researching is that we're not very good at thinking about the future which I think we'll just come back to in a moment. That's such a key line. And then the other was that, you know, we've kind of detached consumption from production. And I think if, if there are two key lessons from the book that they feel like big ones, I just wonder whether you might kind of reflect and expand upon those and, and how we kind of, what we do with those lessons. Yeah, it was one of the things I was sort of tracing through the history of oil. I was just, I was just reading off on people like the history of the Samuel brothers who built Shell, which is a fascinating and amazing, weird story anyway um and uh, they actually got into into oil because they were traders um they were from the east end of london they're sort of like the Delboy trotter and uh rodney of the 1890s um they kind of started trading anything that fell off the back of a boat in the east end um uh, i mean they had uh, that's unfair actually they had a very elaborate and were already quite rich with incredible networks of trading in and out from from Britain to Southeast Asia. And then they got asked by the Rothschilds and a couple of others to start thinking about transporting oil. And from that grew this company that now you can't think of them as anything other than an oil and gas company. Um, but they started off as traders and how much of the oil industry was about transport. And actually one of the things that was interesting about Marcus Samuel as a kind of innovator in the oil industry was that he knew transport and that he was also one of the first people who appreciated that oil would then become the fuel of transport. So when he started, he was moving oil around because he was into transport, but he was moving it on coal-based ships and trains. And that oil was being used for lighting. The origins of the oil industry was all about lighting. It was about replacing whale oil and gas. Uh, coal produced gas for gas lighting. You know, when we talk about to gaslight, you know, those old technologies. Um, and then he spotted, you know, he sort of like watched these cars and went, oh, you know, we've got, I mean, the first cars, there was, a, you could choose when you were thinking about a car, would you have a steam powered car? Would you have an electric car? Or would you have a, um, a one of these newfangled petrol based cars? And it, it's kind of, it's a, there are other alternative universes out there where we've taken different options, you know, that we, we didn't necessarily go the way of oil being for transport. Um, and then also they, the Marcus Samuel who was involved in, in Shell, uh, was really big on pushing the idea that the British Navy should the Admiralty should switch over to oil-based ships as well, uh, and then through World War One we had the innovations around planes, which which was very much from the get-go all about about oil, and so this sort of link between our development of the fossil fuel industries is, is connected to just shipping stuff around, and how that grew this sort of growing this big connection of, of moving stuff around, and that's all tied in with also I think our, our worry about waste and waste totting up. You know, like I did some work before I started writing this book, I sort of took a bit of a pause before I started between sort of making notes of the book and then actually in earnest writing about it and doing a long read for the Wellcome Trust on plastic waste and sort of reading up on plastic waste and thinking about like this weird culture that we have set up where we, we have all this plastic waste in the West that gets produced and then we put it in tankers and move it to Asia and then they empty out the waste and then they fill it with more plastic stuff that they've made and bring it over to us. It's, disgusting uh, but we don't see any of that most of us most consumers we don't yeah. we're so disconnected from these very complicated patterns of consumption and yeah i think you know i also was reading sort of these early criticisms of the industrial revolution from people like william morris and people like that and actually their critiques on how we went around making stuff and our connection to making i think is is quite intimately connected to us unraveling 
the climate crisis today. What you're talking about, this connection with with the things that we're using, whether it's the the supply chain and the light, you know, whole of life of of our plastic goods, or whether it's how energy is generated and where the materials come from and, and what happens to them when they are disused. You know, I've seen some horrific pictures of you know, child labor to produce the raw materials that go into battery technology, which, you know, we're hailing as a really critical future technology for our energy systems. But actually, when we start to think about that whole life cycle, there is a huge disconnect there. And you could say the same for our food systems as well. I mean, the number of people that eat foods that probably they would shy away from if they were part and parcel of the whole chain of events. So I think that's a, you know, for me, that's a really, really key message is actually this this disconnect leads to really bad choices because we're just not seeing the whole of the system and i'm wondering like do you think that that's something that we need to really drastically address if we are going to have you know a hope in hell of of doing something about the climate crisis yeah i mean i think at a very basic level we need to think about curtailing consumption as well for other environmental reasons as well as climate change and it's it's one of the areas that we're keen at possible to do more on in fact we just put a bid together at the moment just to do some work on on that thinking about it was when we relaunched um as possible we set up a set of 10 bold ideas which was just basically me and my co-directors kind of sitting around going what would we really want to do if someone gave us loads of money what would we do no one's going to give us any loads of money but what would we do if we had it um and one of the ideas we had was to have fixing factories and we said every high street should have a fixing factory there's all these closed shops maybe we could convince the councils to to let us have them for you know peppercorn rent and we'd encourage more fixing as well as uh, lots of, of campaigns that already exist for encouraging products to be made to be more fixable like that's one of the challenges we have is a lot of our products are not fixable and so you know that sort of thing we'd be really keen to build and it's something that we do need to do quite a lot of work on and we've, we've also been collaborating with the new weather institute to do some stuff on advertising and how we don't necessarily need to buy as much as we do um, and thinking about you know what pressures are put on us to buy stuff that we don't need and how that's part of the, the climate problem particularly in rich countries like the uk so alice you've you've covered off centuries of of history with with your book what are you hoping the uh the impact of the book will be i wrote it partly for people who are already interested in climate i think they might be interested in their history but i also wrote it because i thought there's probably a lot of people out there who feel Maybe they, they read about the IPCC report at the beginning of the month or something, or they just sort of had this nagging thing at the back of their mind that they should know more about climate change. And they're sort of like, they feel like one of the reasons why they're not taking action on it is they feel like there's all this knowledge that other climate geeks have that they don't have. And if you go looking for climate knowledge, if you like Google, what is climate change? You just get a lot of graphs. And that tells you a lot, like graphs are great. There's loads of really important climate graphs. I have a tattoo, some data from one for a climate graph on my shoulder. But, yeah, love, we were going it. to ask to see your tattoo, by the way, because it does have it on the bio. And actually, we <laughs> put the, the kick around before, and Fred was like, "Oh, I've got one too." <laughs> so we've seen that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's graphs are key to understanding the climate story, and they're stories in themselves. I love a good climate graph, but not everybody's going to be attracted to that. Not everyone's going to get that. And I, I think that there's a, a larger story of the climate crisis which will appeal to different audiences if it's told as a history, as well as just adding loads. Like I certainly felt it filled in a load of gaps for me as someone who spent a lot of time, you know, worrying about climate change and reading up about climate change. I felt there were gaps in yeah. the story that were filled. But I think, I hope, I mean, one of the reasons I bothered to write it as opposed to doing something more useful, like spending more time than possible, um, was that I thought that it might speak to those people who, just a group of, of those people who feel like they want, they need to catch up, you know? I think okay. it's quite reasonable. You're like, oh, everyone else has been studying this. What's going on? And so I'd hope that the history story 
you know, centered on people could could bring in a new audience. You bring us right up to the present day. And I guess, you know, the best indicator of the future is often the past. So it, finally, just to finish on this, if you were to look into your kind of crystal ball, which is essentially your book in a weird way, what does it tell us about how things play out from here? Because you've said you've seen these cycles of action, inactivity, action. Where, where, where do we go from here? I don't know where we go. Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, damn. Historians, I thought don't, give us historians can't tell you about the future. There's no lessons from history. You just the only lessons you take from history are the ones that you've already decided and just sort of read on to you know, you read morals from today onto the stories of the past. Yeah. But I would one thing I did I would say is as well as just occasionally when I was more depressed looking at it and going, oh, here we go again. I, on a on a less kind of cynical model, I did also see a lot of examples of where we had choices. So I said earlier about when cars first started, which was a choice between an electric car or a steam-powered car or a, a petrol-based car. And we've, we've had these choices. There's a classic study. Anyone who's ever studied sociology of technology will have read this amazing essay, which is how the refrigerator got its hum, which is the big fight between gas fridges and electric fridges. It's a, it's a classic study. There were all these forks in the road. It's like VHS and Betamax, where one technology won over another. And we made, you know, we made choices that meant that often sometimes positive but often as it's turned out not so positive and that's something i think we need to take to the future we need to think about which technologies we take to the future mm -hmm. so at the moment the british government loves talking about how we need a green industrial revolution and yeah. like i get why they use that phrase but do we really want to build this new transformation that we need to have as a mirror of the industrial revolution i think the industrial revolution sounds like a terrible blueprint for us to build any change in the future it's based on slavery and caused a lot of unintended environmental problems yeah you know, like, but we should be thinking about what does our new future want to look like? Do we want it to be one that um, is Boris Johnson's idea of the Industrial Revolution or do we want it to look like something else? And that, that I think, is the thing that we need to think about in terms of the future, which is technological choice. Some hard choices to make. Okay, Alice, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you will stick around for our next section, which is future or fiction with our esteemed Fraser Stewart. Uh, it's a little game we'll play and I always, well, normally get it wrong anyway, so you've got the option of, of winning. <laughs> Without further ado, I will hand over to Fraser. I thought that conversation was absolutely bang on, by the way. Dead interesting, dead interesting. So... Skipping over that conversation, we'll get to the actual important stuff now. <laughs> For the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game that we play with our esteemed guests in every episode, where I present the panel with a new technological innovation, which fits very nicely with the theme of the conversation at the end there. And they have to decide if they think it's real, i.e. they think it's the future, or if they think I have just pulled it completely out of my backside. This week's innovation is called... High as a kite. That's high as a kite. Becky, stop laughing. So we know we know that renewable wind technology can come in lots of different shapes and sizes. But how about this? Researchers have designed a wind energy technology around the size of a small crop duster that flies like a kite while generating clean energy. Propellers keep the kite afloat where bigger rotors generate energy and send it back down to a base unit via a cable which looks a little bit like a kite string. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Who's coming in? Well, 
I'm feeling a little smug about this one because I might actually know for the first, we're in episode 21, (laughs) the last episode I got two, two, but I I think this is a thing, okay? I will pause there and let let the, uh, let let our uh, other panelists uh, have a discussion. Alice, I don't know how familiar you are with future or fiction, but generally when Matt says something is a thing, <laughs> it means it ain't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends. On, I mean, I think this sounds like something that might be someone's idea. Whether it works doesn't mean it's fiction, but whether it's actually a viable technology is a different matter. This is where um, Becky and I get quite upset because we're still not really clear on the rules of this game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're not quite sure whether the fact that if it's sitting in a lab or even in somebody's head somewhere, whether it constitutes as a tick from Fraser. Generally speaking, the, the rules of the game, if it's it's something that's at least at the very least still in development today, that it hasn't completely flopped or, or whatever. But is it greenwash? <laughs> Or uh, mm. types. Could be. So, Alice, could you see this sitting, you know, in the backyard of the schools that you work with? Instead of solar run schools, we're going to have schools high as kites. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of these sort of mini wind turbines, which, in fact, I live near, near some. Um, they were built into a building not far where I li- from where I live, but they don't work very well. But they're real. <laughs> they're in the building. They just don't work very well. Yeah. So, I have young children and because I have young children that means we have a numerous number of kites in our house of course yeah all around the place comes with the package comes with the package I've never been able to get a single one in the air (laughs) and it's pretty windy here I'm really struggling to visualize this but how do you get it in the air and then what happens if the wind stops does it just fall out the sky it's in the air through propulsion there's there are rotors that keep it in the air. So it's not like you don't just fly it and then it drops down and comes up again. The idea being that it generates enough to offset the power that it uses to, to stay afloat. Ah, so it's almost like a little drone. Kind of, yeah. On the back of which is some sort of... Yeah, that's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to think about it. Okay. okay. And how yeah. much would it power? Is it just something you'd use to like charge your phone, like those solar backpacks <laughs> or something? Or would you use it to, to charge, you know, to power your home? It's, in my mind, a, a relatively a relatively big size. So yeah, you could you could power something more substantial. You could feasibly. <laughs> I love how Fred has got to delicately put this kind of fence, which is both it could be nonsense, but also <laughs> I've researched it, so it's a real thing. I know, I know. <laughs> but anyway, listen, I'm I'm cards on the table. Uh, this is definitely the future. I, I know companies who've done this. This is the future. I'm not saying we're going to see them, but people have tinkered with this at scale. Okay. Okay. So now that Matt's given such a compelling answer, is anyone convinced? No, I, I agree. I think that they exist. I'm just not convinced they're a good idea. Becky? Now I'm going fiction. I absolutely cannot see this happening. Maybe I just have a really bizarre visual in my mind and I just can't get over that. But You have no faith in Matt whatsoever. <laughs> and also no. It's, it's fair. The, the stats don't lie. They're not good. <laughs> the answer is... It's fiction. No, I'm only kidding. It is, <laughs> it is the future, oh, of course. It goodness. is. <laughs> so Google, the, the, yeah, there are a few companies who have done it, but the most successful and who have trialed it even offshore recently are Google affiliated innovation outfit Makani, who have trialed the system in various different contexts. It is about the size of like a crop duster plane. 
they say that because it uses a string rather than like a big turbine tower, it uses way less material, but also it can generate more efficiently, or at least so they claim. So yes, high as a kite is the future. Yeah, although worth noting, Google have dropped it now. Makani, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, is all the kind of stuff, all the knowledge around the innovation is kind of open source out there for somebody to pick it up. But there are other companies out there doing similar stuff. There was one in Glasgow, Kite Power Systems. People are doing this and there are good reasons for which we don't have the pod time to explain. <laughs> but maybe another day. For those interested, what is what is the proper name of this technology? Airborne Wind Energy Systems. Gosh, you really do know about it. AWES. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the few things I've actually researched of late. So listen, this is a one in a 20 episode phenomenon, this Alice. Normally I crash and burn, uh, no pun intended. Can I give you a, a little history fact you know, just to, to, on that? Because you said that they're, they fail, but they're open source or they've been, uh, they're not funded anymore by Google. It's all open source. So this one of the first experiments in really big winds, rather than just having a little wind turbine in your back garden to power a few lights, but like proper grid capacity wind, was in, in the States, either side of the first or Second World War in the 1940s. It failed spectacularly in the end. It got dubbed the blade that failed because a big blade from it fell off and flew through the air and landed at the feet of the of the great innovator um he ended up being yeah like wind is terrible it's not going to work it was a silly idea and being very pro-nuclear but his funders made him write a, book, a report on how he did it all and then in the energy crisis in the 70s when a few other people were like maybe we could go back to wind technology and do it at, at scale they used his research and came back to it and sort of solved some of the problems. And so maybe we all think that this idea is a bad idea now, but it's great that it's open source because maybe <laughs> in a few years we'll get back to it. Amazing. Amazing. Exactly. And therein lies a lesson, right? We've got to share our knowledge. Yes. Otherwise, innovation doesn't happen. Right. Well, listen, that brings us to the very end. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your time, Alice. You've been listening to Local Zero at Local Zero Pod on Twitter if you want to join the conversation. And until next time, thank you for listening and see you soon. Bye bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.